Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's an awesome thing to know you and to increase in our knowledge of you and to realize that our lives led by your Holy Spirit in this world can make a difference for you. And we pray now that the part of your word that we look at this morning might make a difference in us. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for the sake of his church. Amen. Today we're beginning a brand new series of messages. Every four or five years we do that. At least once or twice a year. Usually a series of messages for us means we're going to be in word, the Word of God somewhere for a while. And it's true of this one. We're calling this series of messages exactly what the New Testament calls it, the Acts of the Apostles all through the world. It's a series of messages that will take us verse by verse through the book of Acts. And that's the book. That's the book that documents the work of those apostles in the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ throughout the entire Roman world. Acts is a book that recounts the most remarkable remake of the world ever seen by man. More impressive than the exploits of Alexander the Great or of any Roman emperor or any contemporary world leader. The subtitle of this series is Turning the World Upside Down. That's what they did. They changed the world through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now that phrase, turning the world upside down, is actually taken from an accusation that was made by the unbelievers in the city of Ephesus who were decrying the work of the apostles, especially the apostle Paul. They said, those men, we'll get to this a little bit later in this series, but they said, those men that have turned the world upside down have now come here. And the idea was, we need to deal with them before they turn our world, our city, upside down. And so I encourage you, as of course I'll be doing myself, let's read through the entire book of Acts. You could sit down, really, and almost read through it in one setting, though it's fairly long. But you could give yourself to that, maybe on two settings. Depending on the size of your Bible, it might be about 40 pages long. Read through the entire book of Acts this week, if you can. At least read chapter 1 this week. How many of you think you'd do that? Ah, look at that, look at that. 
Call somebody this week and say, have you read through chapter 1 yet? Because at least you know where we'll be next Sunday in chapter 1, and we may be there for a little while. Now today, before we get into the actual verses of the book and the development of the story and walking, as it were, with the apostles and the believers in the the first church in Jerusalem on a day-by-day kind of way, I want to share with you a couple of overarching concepts. These would be concepts that that pretty much... uh, give substance to the entire series. A couple of points of reference, if you will. So here's the first one. Key series concept one. You have it in front of you. Jesus Christ is the designer and the developer of the church. It belongs to him. That underlies, that truth underlies almost everything we're going to see these early disciples doing. And the way things worked out. Jesus Christ is the designer and developer of the church. It belongs to him. Jesus said one day to his disciples, it's recorded in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, let me say right off the bat that much is made by some out of the word that the Holy Spirit put in Jesus' mouth that is translated church. Do a word study on that word and you'll gain great insights. Not really. There's nothing really to see in that word. The Greek word translated church that the Spirit gave Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. And it simply is the Greek word for an assembly. A group of generally like-minded people joined together purposefully. It could be a political assembly. Could be an assembly of workers or of something else. The point is, it's a word that identifies a group of people joined together with something in common. When joined together, they form an ecclesia. Now, let's draw a few observations based upon the declaration of intention that we just heard Jesus express. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So kind of playing on that Greek word a little bit, because it's been worked its way into our theological vocabulary, I want to share with you and make today's ecclesiastical observations, which means observations about the what? Church. Here's the first one. Jesus intends to build something in this world. A church. Now, this church will possess identity and demonstrate stability. So first off, let's just think about what is its identity? What is the identity of this thing called the church? Well, Jesus said, it's my church. I will build my church. 
And the more important word of that two-word expression is the word my, not the word church. The word church was just a word for a gathering of people. People joined together with some sort of a common interest, an ecclesia. But when Jesus puts the other word with it, what kind of ecclesia is this? What kind of joining together? What kind of fellowship? He says, it's mine. I will build my church. You see, the local church, the local ecclesia that Jesus is building is not just any old gathering of people. It's a gathering of Jesus' people. It belongs to him. He loves it. He died for it. He is the head of it. And we must never let that truth get away from us. Though we may find that word all over the place. Church, 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 church. What we're talking about here is the thing that Jesus called my church, the one he's building. So let me just say, never put a man's name on a church. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but just let me tell you, don't do this. Don't say something like this. I attend Pastor Mark's church. Now, confession time. How many of you have ever said that? When you're explaining to somebody, you know, it might be some kid. We got something on Facebook last Sunday afternoon. Ryan posted something about the, the baptism, just a beautiful testimony statement. Almost 100 people responded to it. And one of those people who responded to it was a person that I recall as a little girl. And she writes in, now very likely in her early 50s. She knows Ryan. She knows Jody. She keeps up with them on Facebook. She responds this way. Oh, that's awesome. Ryan's daughter was baptized on you last Sunday. Wasn't that a great, great day? And she says, was that Pastor Mark who bapti- who's baptizing her? He baptized me when I was 10. She's 52. The unwritten thing was, is he still alive? (laughs) He's still able to get in the water and let him down and get him up and, and actually talk. And he baptized me when I was 10, she said. See, now that's the kind of person who say, oh, yeah, you know, I, uh, yeah, I was baptized in Pastor Mark's church 42 years ago. They put another name on it, but I always referred to it as Pastor Mark's church. See, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't put a denominational name on a church. As in, I attend the Methodist Church or the Baptist Church or the Episcopalian Church in Apple Valley. What if we started and disciplined ourselves to to say something like this if we were wanting to identify the place where we worship? Say something like this, just for us and for anyone. Say, I attend, I attend the local congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ called Sun Life Community Church that meets on the corner of Ottawa and Apple Valley Roads in Apple Valley. That's what we got going here. 
we today are part of the worldwide, ages-long Church of Jesus Christ that he is building. We belong to the particular part of that church called Sun Life Community Church that meets in this particular physical location. But it's sure not Pastor Mark's church, and it's not identified, it should not be identified with anything else than with Jesus Christ. My church, he said, I will build. So that's its identity. Its stability, well, he said even the gates of hell cannot overcome that, and we'll, we'll be talking about that a little bit more later. And we'll see examples of, of that all through the book of Acts as we go along. But first off, an observation, Jesus intends to build something that is a church. This church will possess identity and will demonstrate stability. Second thing, the church is composed of all people who belong by faith to Jesus Christ and are committed to his cause. And guess what? All of them aren't in Sun Life, Right? Sun Life isn't the only place where those people are found. Those people are found throughout the whole world. They're found from the first century of, uh, of our history right up until the 21st century that we're living in. The church that Jesus called my church, his church, is composed of all people who belong by faith to him and are committed to his cause. These are people who love him, and they love one another, and they are unique in the world. Wherever they go, they seek each other out and unite themselves together. Now, here's a third observation I'd make, and it's kind of a, a painful one to say, but unfortunately, it's, it's more true than we would want to believe. Third observation is this. True churches are few. All that glitters is not gold, says the old saying, and all that goes by the name church is not that which Christ is building. In fact, there are things called church in our world that are not churches at all. In our country today, you can choose to attend churches of Satan, the satanic church. You can choose to attend gay churches that identify themselves that way. When permission was sought by our neighbors right next door here to build a Hindu temple, one of our town's leaders said, well, we already have one church in that area, why not two? In his mind, we now have two churches side by side. Ours and a Hindu temple. And in the minds of one of the leaders of the town of Apple Valley, we're both the same thing. Two churches side by side. How uninformed is that? The letters C-H-U-R-C-H on a sign or in the minutes of a council meeting are not sufficient to say that this thing is the church that Jesus Christ is building. In fact, Jesus once said, and we'd have it in red letters in our, in our Bible, he just said, by their fruits, 
by their fruits. By the things they teach and practice, they will be known. We live in a sloppy time, biblically. We live in a time where there is less Bible knowledge than at any other previous time in this noted land of ours. So it's not surprising, since folks know the Bible so little, and since folks are interested in the Bible not very much, and sometimes the people doing the preaching of it may not have much of a grasp on it either, it's not surprising that there are churches, so-called, that have little of the teachings of Christ or the presence of the Spirit of Christ within them. If they are places that Jesus himself is still building, they must be viewed by him as a fixer-upper. In such places, Jesus is found, as he pictured himself in the book of Revelation, standing at the door of such a place and knocking. Seeking admission, seeking to be brought into the heart of things, seeking to have his teachings create a red-letter living within that place. And yet way back in the first century, Jesus said churches can get to such a place and get focused on such things and get involved in in such kinds of programs and activities that Jesus could be out on the porch and they don't even know they've removed him from their presence. It's a distressing image. However, we've got to know this. In spite of what people do, in spite of how things kind of sometimes turn out, Jesus himself is committed to building churches that truly know him and honor him and speak and teach accurately about him. He has never given up on that purpose in our world. And let me just say, I speak for I hope every one of us in this room, Sun Life Community Church, would seek to be such a church. Now here's the next observation I'd share. The gates of hell, because that's an expression. It's like, what in the world? What in the world? You don't find that all over the Bible. You just find Jesus here. Say, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell. I could just imagine the disciples looking at each other and saying, what? Guys, have you seen any gates? Uh, Have we been close enough to hell to see the gates? What does he mean? Well, he just says what he says. The gates of hell will, will not prevail against it, but here you have the word church and you have the phrase gates of hell in the same sentence uh, and letting us know there is a conflict between whatever the gates of hell are and what the church of Jesus Christ is. And so I'd share this with you this morning as an observation. The gates of hell are composed of all living beings, human and demonic, who despise Christ and his church. And they are many. 
They seek to overwhelm and destroy Christ's church. They are found everywhere. The devil himself is the architect and the operator of those gates. Imagine they have wheels under them. They can just move around through the world and come against whatever they want to come against. The devil is the architect and the operator of the gates of hell. He commands a host of spiritual beings who go to and fro at his bidding. We will see him seeking to destroy the early church as we work our way through the book of Acts. Now let me say this. Human beings. Human beings can become card-carrying members of the Gates of Hell Club. They can join forces with the devil, even sometimes unknowingly. I remember, and this week it was brought back to my mind, and anytime something comes back to my mind, I'm so delighted these days. <laughs> it's like, Red, I gotta share that. So I remembered and have kind of had in my memory for all these years an incredible moment. It took place long years ago when I was in seminary. Usually we say when Linda and I were in seminary. She was the brains of the outfit. When one of the more popular professors in seminary, his name was Dr. Bruce Shelley, I remember when he told us about an encounter that he had had with a fellow professor. A professor who had come out of a well-known evangelistic ministry to join the seminary to teach witnessing techniques to all of us seminarians. Now this fellow, who was younger than Dr. Shelley for sure, this fellow was forever pointing out to us the inadequacies of the church and the ineffectiveness of their methodologies and how behind the times churches generally were in their approaches to reaching contemporary Americans. It didn't help that every criticism he made came with a smug, I-know-it-all attitude. Finally, the day came when Dr. Shelley, in response to this younger man's most current rant against the church, just looked him straight in the eye. And he said, Don, don't you ever get tired of being part of the gates of hell? <laughs> Woo. I was only in my 20s then. I was kind of on Don's side. <laughs> Man, we got to get this place shaped. To, you know, if, if the church could be like that great organization that's winning college kids to Christ by the millions going all around the world. You know, we need to just change the, the church and this and that, and Don's right on. And boy, when Dr. Shelley said that, it was like, ooh, I think I'll step out of the way. <laughs> what is he saying here? What is he saying? You see, what he meant with those words was this. And now at my advanced age, I get it. He said, Don, Don, you sound like you despise the very thing that Jesus Christ, whom you confess as your Savior and Lord, is seeking to build.
That was over 50 years ago. Long before the church growth movement built up momentum, long before the seeker-sensitive church movement spread across our land, long before prosperity preaching made it to the airwaves, all these types of churches have some serious problems with the biblically-based church that Jesus is building. They could almost be considered enemies of the cross and possibly of the Christ of the cross. And now in our current day, genuine opponents of Jesus Christ and of his true church are are proliferating in our country. They, They come from all sides, all around. These are people who are openly and vigorously opposed to Christian values and biblical truths. The time has already come when the true church of Jesus Christ and the clear declarations of the Bible are being legislated against in this land of ours. The gates of hell will seek to surround the church and hem them in, it in, and choke it out. But here's the bottom line this morning, straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. The antics of the enemy, our next observation, the antics of the enemy will not prevail. They did not prevail in the first century. We're going to discover that as we go through the book of Acts. We're going to see triumph after triumph, even though there's attack after attack. And those antics of the enemy will not triumph in the 21st century. Because as our key series, Concept One, says, Jesus Christ himself is the designer and the builder of his church. It belongs to him, and he will not let it fail. Now we need to keep that in mind as we work our way through the book of Acts. Here now is our key series concept two. And as I look at the clock, I got time for this. I I had a note here that says, uh, Mark, if you need to, you could quit right here and make this part two next week. But we're in in good shape here. None of you have asked any questions, so we can just keep moving right along. (laughs) Key concept series two, here we go. Number two, the Church of Jesus Christ inevitably creates disruption in the world. It forces choices. The church of Jesus Christ, that is the real one he is building around his teachings, led and fueled by the power of his spirit, that church inevitably creates disruption in the world. It forces choices. That's what the the unbelievers in the city of Ephesus that I mentioned before said about these apostles. They're disrupting things. In fact, they're turning things completely around. They're messing with our lives. What, by bringing an army into town? No. No just by bringing the truth of God into town. And when people embrace that truth of God, 
they realize that so much I believed up to this point is wrong. So much I've been doing based upon what I believe up to this point needs to change. And so here we have the phrase again. These men who have turned the world upside down have now come here. I wonder if there's any communities anywhere in our country in the last 15, 20 years where any town council would come together and you so say, these men, these Christians, these preachers, these teachers, these people who are trying to follow this book they call God's Word, they have turned our town upside down. They've turned merchants into honest men. Our politicians no longer take bribes. We, we can't get anywhere with them. These people are a menace. Now, isn't the truth? Isn't it the truth in the last 10, 15, 20 years? Our win-at-all-costs kind of Christian leadership would say, we wouldn't want anybody to say that about us. We don't want anybody blaming us for creating uh, disruptions in society. We just need to blend in and get along, and we can find plenty of Bible verses that will go along with the current standards. We just won't mention these Bible verses that would really be threat Everything. But see, in the early days, the real church of Jesus Christ was advancing in the world. And the real church of Jesus Christ that Jesus himself was building was a threat to the real world. Not physically, nobody talking nasty, nobody uh, raising an army, like I said, but just bringing the truth of God to bear into human society and having people born again by the Spirit of God in their heart who then embrace that truth and say, that's the way we ought to live. And pretty soon you have a bunch of people living in a way that's completely contrary to the way they used to live and the way that everybody else does. And all of a sudden there's choices in front of people. And that can bring stress and strain. It can divide families. It can divide homes. And the world would say, how could that ever be a good thing? It'd be better if we all just went quietly to hell, wouldn't it? Well, that's what we're going to see taking place here in the book of Acts. It didn't take long for the ecclesia of Jesus to create a stir in the world. First, it created a stir in the Jewish world. It upset, turned around, made upside down much of what the Jews were putting their faith in. It then made that upset in the broader society. Now, here's the point. If you haven't gotten it already, I'll just give it to you now. Here's the point. The apostles never apologized for the disruption they created. Never. 
And we will see examples of it again and again. They never sought to minimize that disruption by altering the content or minimizing the impact and the application of their message. The ecclesia of Jesus inevitably conflicts with things in the various ecclesias of human society. And the thing we must continually ask ourselves, and we will ask ourselves as we wend our way through the book of Acts, is this. To what degree, to what degree have I bought into the very values of society with which the church of Jesus Christ is in conflict? To what degree has the church that I am part of done the same? And so with that sobering uh, question in mind, just consider with me uh, several sociological observations. And with these, we'll, we'll close, but let's just go right through them. Notice each one of them reveals a human society attitude on the part of some who actually identify with Christ. Number one observation, the world. Human society is impressed by bigness. Followers of Christ can be just as impressed as is any unbeliever. We have a verse there that shows the the disciples, just natural human tendency. Jesus and the disciples, it's recorded in Mark chapter 13, the last week of Jesus' life, right after the triumphal entry. They're walking by the temple and the disciples said to Jesus, Look at these massive stones and buildings. The temple, the other structures. I mean, it's just awesome. We Jews really got something going here. How massive they are, how great they are. How easy it is. Now listen to this. How easy it is to confuse earthly bigness with heavenly blessing. This coming sum, summer, Linda and I have a, uh, an opportunity to hit another milestone. I haven't even mentioned this to her, so she's hearing it right now. But see, this summer, this coming summer will be the 29th summer that Linda and I have not attended any annual church conference. I have not sat in any local pastor's meetings for that same period of time. As a result, we have not been asked the question, so is your church growing once in the last 29 years? It would certainly create a bit of a disruption in the ecclesiastical universe if I were to answer that question by saying... Uh, we haven't counted and recorded our attendance in years. What? Even the Christian organization that has loaned us money to build this building wants to know every single year how many people are in attendance. And every year I write back on that thing, we don't keep track of attendance. We, We just thank God for everyone who comes through our doors. We just believe that everyone who comes through our doors on any given Sunday, God is entrusting to us, and we praise him for them. 
Now, we do have a membership, a very special kind of membership. I can give you that number because we rejoice in that. But um, that typical question used to be called keeping track of nickels and noses. How much money you're bringing in and how many people are in the seats? As though that means something. See, what it usually means, more people in the seats means God's obviously blessing. They never ask, what did you do to get them there? Well, we give away free cars every quarter. <laughs> well, you know, I could see God, uh, you know, God blesses us with stuff. Why not have a drawing? Attendance goes up and down when we get to the peak of that. No, see, just how many are there? The world is impressed with bigness, with size, with numbers. However, in contrast to the way the world, that is human society, is impressed with bigness, the church of Jesus Christ, the church that he's building, is impressed, powerfully impressed by purity. That very same last week of Jesus' life, he went into the temple where he found all kinds of things being done to encourage attendance and encourage people being there, encouraging sacrifices. They were selling animals in the court of the Gentiles. They were exchanging money. They were doing all kinds of things to, to keep the people coming and making it easy for the people to do the thing that God said they should do. And Jesus threw them all out, chased them out with a whip. And then he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. See, I don't care how many are in attendance. You are mocking God by what you're doing. You are stealing from the ones who are coming. And he chased them out. Purity is what catches Jesus' eye. Purity, truthfulness, honoring things, honoring God with what we do is what's on his heart. All this other stuff has nothing to do with what God would have. And so Jesus is building a church where the most important growth is internal and spiritual, not external and material. So here are some questions I can easily imagine Jesus asking. So, if he were at the church conference and he had all the pastors there kind of mixing and matching numbers together and kind of figuring out who's the top guy and who's not the top guy and so what's wrong with you? Here I can imagine Jesus asking questions like this. So, are the people of your church walking obediently and joyfully with the Spirit and with each other? Are they coming to truly and accurately know God? Are they arriving at the end of their earthly lives with their faith intact and their hearts eager to enter the Lord's glorious presence? Are they willing to tell anyone who will listen that Jesus Christ is their Savior and Lord and that eternal life can only be obtained through faith in him? Is purity in faith and life a priority for them? You see, purity surely was and is a priority for Jesus. And that priority can at times be incredibly disruptive. 
and even disturbing. Third thing, so we'll just push along here. Third observation from our society, the world, that is human society, demands satisfaction. The Apostle Paul was well aware of that demand of human society. He was well aware it can enter into and affect the affairs of a local ecclesia of believers. So he gave his young protege, Timothy, a heads up. Says, Timothy, stuff like this could be coming your way, so get wary for it. And here's what he said, 2 Timothy 4.3. He said, for the time will come, Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor in, a, in the church at Ephesus. The second generation, you could say, following the, the apostles. He said, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Amazing, isn't it? Wouldn't you think sound doctrine, people would just want to drink it up like the, the best beverage they ever had? Wasn't it true that as soon as Jesus really got about teaching the serious stuff about his own sacrifice, that his crowds just swelled? No. When he was feeding them fish and loaves, there's thousands of them. When he told them that he was going to have to die, and you have to make a commitment somehow to him using strange language like he who, unless you eat my flesh, whatever that means, you cannot have eternal life. They just took off for home. And so Paul says to Timothy, you know the scripture, he's already told us that. In the letter he says, Timothy, you've known the scripture from the time you were a little boy. Your grandmother taught you, your mother taught you. You've known it since you were a little boy, but let me tell you, just because you know it and you love it and you know how to deliver it and you put your heart into it, there will come a time. There will come a time when people will not put up with. See, that means you put up with something that's kind of an annoyance. Paul might be saying, well, your people have been sort of annoyed with God's truth for quite a while now. But there's coming a time where they just won't put up with it anymore. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. It's like, Timothy, they don't like what you're saying. I know what you're telling me. It comes right out of the Bible. It's really from the Holy Spirit. But it's not what they want to hear. Because the stuff you're telling them would be disruptive to their life. And so rather than change their life to match what you're preaching, they're going to change the preacher to match what they're wanting. And so they will gather around themselves a great number of teachers. Strength in numbers. Just hear one pastor say something wrong, you say, man, that's wrong. But what if you get 20 pastors together and they're all saying the same wrong thing? Well, they can't all be wrong, can they? So they will gather a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Let me tell you, those times have come again and again, every generation or so. They have certainly come in our day. People want to hear things that will suit their own desires. They want to be told that they're okay just as they are. 
They will travel miles or pay big bucks to connect with teachers or preachers who will agree with them. Paul preceded the heads-up verse that we just read with this one. Before he told Timothy there will come a time, he, he gave this directive. He said, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Whether it's in season, whether it's out of season, whether it's convenient, whether it's what, just preach the word because, Timothy, there will come a time when people will not put up with it. So preach it while you can. Let it penetrate people's hearts while their hearts are at least able to be penetrated before the time comes. You see, tell them. Tell them what God says, not what they want to hear. But the world, human society demands eventually satisfaction. I want to hear what I want to hear. I want to do what I want to do. I want it presented in a way that I think uh, uh, matches up with me the best. But the truth of it is the church of Jesus Christ demands truth. Oh my goodness. Someone who's a member of the true church of Jesus Christ, they they can sniff truth a mile away. They will drive miles to hear somebody preaching the truth. They will get a book that is filled with truth. They will read God's word and underline the verses that absolutely are declaring key truths. The church of Jesus Christ demands that. Jesus said, John 16, 13, when the spirit comes, he'll guide you into all truth. I mean, that's what we're about. We're about the truth. And the spirit will guide you into it. And then that truth, Jesus said, will set you free from all kinds of hang-ups and problems. It'll draw you right into the, the flow of God's blessing in your life. And so we say here, the church Jesus is building is truth-based and it will be truth-evaluated. Last thing, last sociological observation. It's one we know well. It's one that can easily slip into church culture. And it's one that did slip into the church culture of the first century. And it goes this way. The world, human society, thrives on competition. Remember back in the day when we all had real grass in front of our houses? And in the whole neighborhood, everybody kept track of whose yard, you know, and you didn't want your yard to be at the bottom of the heap, so you would, if you're one of those people. I was one of those people. You would fertilize it. You would take care of it. You would weed it. You would mow it at a correct height. In fact, I was so much this way that where Linda and I first lived in this community here, our neighbor's yard, the way it was built, the two yards just blended right together. There's no wall in between. No, it just the grass, one big spot. Oh, mine looked great. And he couldn't care less. It didn't help to say, I'm beating him upside. No, because it just, so finally I made a deal with him. I'll mow your yard. I'll fertilize your yard. Let's just pretend it's one big yard. I didn't say anything about him not taking care of it, 
but it's like, let's just pretend it's one big yard, and since I'm out here doing it, I might as well just come right across the imaginary line, and I'll do your... We had an awesome yard. <laughs> he probably looked down his front window and said, wow, wow. Friends would probably come by and visit him and comment on his yard. I doubt he said to one person, oh, my neighbor takes care of that. I was making a mess of it. No. We, we want to look good. We're naturally competitive. The world is that way. Well, sometimes things called churches can become competitive, driven by that competitive spirit. And Paul, when he was locked up in, a, in arrest in Rome, not necessarily in a dungeon, but just under house arrest, and he wrote all these little letters in the New Testament, he wrote a letter to the, to the Philippian church in the very first chapter. While he's in jail, while he's unable to get out and minister, there were other people jumping into the ministry, not necessarily for Christ's sake but jumping into the ministry and preaching so that they would gain a reputation that was greater than Paul's. And so Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, I know this is going on. He said, some people preach Christ. As far as you know, they're saying the truth about Christ. But some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Who's the biggest? Who's the best? Who won the award this year? Some preachers, as I said, were actually seeking to outshine the Apostle Paul, to gain more celebrity than he had. Paul was in prison and they were competing with him. You see, preaching Christ in order to show someone up is ultimately just preaching self. It's a worldly endeavor, and it does not honor Christ. On the other hand, the church of Jesus Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ, thrives on cooperation. Here's what Paul wrote to the, first, the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 6, talking about the way ministry took place in their midst. He said, I, Paul, planted the seed. Paul went a lot of places where he was the first one to declare the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ. And it's like planting the seed in the ground. He said, I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos, who was a great Bible teacher, watered it. He came along later, and, and as that, those new believers were just starting to sprout out of that seed of belief, Apollos could just take them the rest of the way. He watered it. But Paul says, God made it grow. We were both serving together cooperatively in the plan of God, where the people, to some degree at times, fell prey to saying, well, I think Paul's the best. And others said, I think Apollos is a better Bible teacher. And Paul said in that passage, who is Paul and who is Apollos? I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. God made it grow, and we were both serving him and you, and sharing together in the ministry. 
The Church of Jesus Christ thrives on cooperation. The church really was the first to demonstrate it takes a whole village. It takes a whole family of faith to accomplish the task that Christ wants done in the churches he's building. Every one of you right here now, you're part of it. And Christ wants you to feel part of it. And we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, the various people that God used in powerful ways to advance this, this great work that Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, was doing in the world. So our final thought just says this. Here we go. There is no more important organization in the world than the United Nations. Oh, just a minute there. I uh, read that wrong. There is no more important organization in the world ah, than the Church of Jesus Christ. Do you agree? Within its walls and through its message, mankind finds, can find, forgiveness, acceptance, protection, and purpose. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ is building. That's what we are in the midst of experiencing. And as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see the history of, of, of a, a great, great building project that spread through the whole Mediterranean world. And it's going to be great. Read chapter 1, at least, this week. Heavenly Father, sometimes we wish we were the first generation. Sometimes we wish we were people who walked on the earth while Jesus was walking on the earth. Sometimes we wish like we were discovering with them for the very first time the truths that Jesus brought, even the truths that that the apostles gave us to explain what it meant when Jesus died on the cross and what his resurrection symbolizes. And, and we might wish we had the joy of, of being in that first go-around group. But Father, what a delight there is also to be at this point in the history of the world and look back and see how it's worked out and to see the dynamic of the word of God, the truth of God, the impact it made upon the world, how lives were changed, and, and for us to know that that same word is what changed our life. And if we are faithful to it, and if we live it out, and if we declare it, and if we share it in all the wonderful ways that the scripture tells us to do it, and our heart is right as we do, that we will see great change. We will see the word of God just making, turning things from wrong to right in the lives of individuals, the people we love and know. And sometimes if the group of those individuals gets big enough, even a society can take steps in the direction of, of things that are better, and are more honoring to you. And so, Father, just make your word live in our heart this week and in the weeks to come. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who determined there was something he would devote himself to doing, even from heaven right now, building his church. We thank you for it now in his name.
Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.